Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, May 25th. Happy Memorial Day to all of you listeners out there. And of course, we want to start today's podcast by giving a huge thank you to all of those who are currently in service, all of those who have served the military in the past, those family members, of course, of those in the military as well. We are so grateful for all of your efforts, everything you do to keep all of us safe and to ensure that we can all live the lives we have all grown so accustomed to. So a huge thank you to all of you. And again, I know these are not the usual times. These are not the normal circumstances under which any of us would be celebrating our Memorial Day weekends, a weekend that really symbolizes the start of summer. And you know, for me personally growing up, Memorial Day weekend was always the weekend that my section, the Southeast Michigan, hosted our qualifier event. And the purpose of that qualifier was to get to the Midwest closed, which for those of you players who, or parents who know, have kids who play the USDA circuit, the Midwest closed is really the Super Bowl of Midwest tennis. And so this was always such an important weekend to me. And of course, it being under these circumstances, it does feel different. But of course, nevertheless, we are as grateful as always for the service of all of those who have served in our U.S. military. So a huge thank you to all of you to start today's podcast. It's going to be a little bit of a different show today. Again, we want to keep things light for all of you listeners. We know hopefully you're spending some time with your family, enjoying a long weekend, even if it is under these quarantine circumstances. Uh, But we wanted to give you guys a little bit of content to enjoy. Maybe you need a little 15, 20-minute break from all of the Memorial Day action. And so what we're going to be doing today in lieu of talking about all of the news from the professional tennis world this past weekend, and there was quite a bit of it, of course, the big head the Labor Cup style event happening for the women in Charleston in June. It's going to be 16 players, two teams of eight going head to head. It's going to be a fanless event, but still, I know we're all looking forward to that sort of action. And, you know, they've announced some of the players, people like Sophia Kennan and Bianca Andreescu, and of course, Bethany Maddox Sands, who we had the chance to talk about the event with during, uh, on Friday, actually. Now, we, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I had my first scoop, I thought, in my life. I actually knew this event was going to place. I had multiple sources confirming it, but I didn't want anyone to get in trouble. And so we had held off, but still, hopefully all of you got to see that news uh, this past weekend, and again, we talked to B-Dog, Bethany Maddox-Sands, third time she's come on the podcast, not to name drop, but uh, she is always one of my favorites, so I always just think it's so cool when we get her on the show, Uh, and we talked to her, and this time we changed things up for part three of the trilogy. We hit video. We did it on Zoom, and so we got to see one another. Of course, that always adds to the dynamic, but it also means that super producer Daniel Westoff gets to put even more of his spin on the product and it's a video all of you can enjoy on our YouTube channel. If you go and search Cracked Rackets on YouTube, you'll find all of our stuff, of course. Uh, so, But we're going to save, you know, that talking about that event, talking about some of the other exhibition-style events that are popping up all over the world as professional tennis players slowly but surely begin to make their uh, return, and slowly but surely and also safely begin to make their return to the tennis court. We're going to save all of those stories again for tomorrow's podcast. What we're going to do on today's mini break is play all of you an episode from our brand new Crack Rackets podcast, the Inside Out podcast. It's our first narrative-based show here at Crack Rackets, and we wanted to do something a little bit different because, of course, we always enjoy you know doing these various player interviews, whether it be at the junior, the college, the professional level, talking to coaches and members of the media about the current state of the game. But of course, in this period of quarantine, we've all had some time to reflect, and there are so many great stories littered throughout the history 
history of tennis, and we wanted to start to tell those stories, put a premium on sharing them with you, the listeners, so that you can have an even greater depth of knowledge about our sport, how we got to where we are today. And our first season of the Inside Out podcast focuses on a topic that is probably the reason I am the sort of tennis fan I am, and that's talking about the history of American men's tennis throughout the open era. And there have been so many fantastic American men's tennis players, you know, the big ones who stand out, of course, Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi, John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors. But even beyond that, you look at players like Arthur Ashe and not only what he did for tennis uh, via his results, but what he did for tennis off the court as well. And people like McEnroe, like Connors, and of course, then you have the run of Andy Roddick, and now the current state of American tennis players, and you know, throughout the series, we examine all of the various accomplishments of these players, and our goal is to name the single best player, uh, the single best American male player throughout the open era in any given season, and talk about why they would be considered the best American, why they captured the attention of the fans more than their contemporaries, how they succeeded at the biggest uh, stages, and ultimately what their imprint on the sport was, and you know, it was so fun for us to get to record the series. It's based off of an article series I wrote quite a few years ago, and uh, you can find that article series, The Belt, on our website, CrackedRackets.com. But, you know, it was nice to re-examine that because, A, I thought to myself, wow, you know, you don't need to be in college still to become better at what you do. I think I have become a better writer. Uh, there's context points I missed in that article series. And so it was nice for me personally to get to go back, add a little bit of depth, a little bit more character to the stories. Uh, but then, cooler than anything else, again, super producer Daniel Westhoff got to put his spin on the entire series. And, you know, he found clips and interviews views to incorporate just to help you guys set the scene even further to hear from some of the other players other the other commentators in the time the context of the success all of these players were having having you know you know right now it's always a hot topic especially when there's not actual being tennis played to or actual tennis being played to discuss the goats right who's the greatest of all time Federer is it Djokovic is it Nadal for the men's side of course for the women's side Navratilova Graf Everett and Serena Um, these are debates we are all having as tennis fans constantly and so you know we wanted to go back in time and to provide some context because there was a moment when Pete Sampras was considered the greatest tennis player to have ever lived when he won his four, or greatest male tennis player excuse me to have ever lived when he won his 14th Grand Slam set that record in the open era the success he had from 1993 to 1998 it's it's second to none right and so you know actually in the spirit of memorial day that's the episode we want to play for you all today we're going to talk about pete sampras's era in particular we also of course talk about his biggest rival andre agassi and how the rivalry between those two men shaped american men's tennis during that time period brought it to new heights it had never before been seen or it had never before seen as a product and you know i think you all are really going to enjoy this episode before we get to that real quickly, I just want to let you know, of course, that these podcast episodes here at the Mini Break are made possible day in, day out due to the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports. And you're used to their support probably as a tennis player because for more than 20 years, they've served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers. And it's no joke when I say they offer a comprehensive selection of fast shipping tennis supplies that few retailers can match. They have one of the largest in-stock inventories of equipment online with tens of thousands of products. That's no joke, folks. You could find tens of thousands of different individual items, whether you go to grips or strings or rackets or socks or shoes or shirts or hats, whatever it may be, they've got it on their website available for shipping from their automated warehouse. 
directly to your front door. They value innovation as well, and they've personally tailored their products to highlight your skills on the court. That means they've got it all, whether it's a new racket, a classic you're looking for, you're comfortable with your Prince Graphite like I am. Uh, you know, whatever it may be, they've got that sort of stuff, uh, whether it's an old racket, vintage, or a newer model available for you. And maybe you don't know what you need at this point in your game. It's been a while since you've hit the courts. I like to say I'm a semi-retired tennis player at this point. I don't really know what I retired from, uh, but I certainly don't play as frequently as I did through college. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly what would fit my game. I think my tension, I probably need a little bit looser strings at this point because I looked in the mirror, folks, and the biceps, the triceps, the shoulders, they are not once what they once were. They're nice still. You know, they get the job done, but not once they want what they once were. And so I can turn to Midwest Sports' intimately uh, or well-trained staff because they're intimately familiar. They're intimate as well, but they're well-trained too. Uh, and they're so familiar with the equipment they have and can help you find that perfect racket, perfect shoe, or perfect pair of tennis clothing that is sure to put you ahead of the competition. So Here's how you can find it all. Go to MidwestSports.com. You're going to see some stuff you like. I guarantee you're going to want to order it up. Well, you're going to want to save some money on that. You're not going to need to because their prices already beat their competitors. But just to add a little bit more, save a little more money in your pocket, you're going to want to use our promo code CR15 because not only will you get 15% off of your order, not only will you get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75, but because Midwest Sports wants to make sure that you can be prepared whenever it is safe and possible for you to return to the court. They're also going to throw in a free can of Wilson extra duty tennis balls with no added charge to make sure you have all of the equipment you need when you are ready to make your return to the court. So go to MidwestSports.com, use that promo code CR15, get 15% off all of your purchases. We are so grateful for the support Midwest Sports continues to give us. The least we can do is ask you to go support them as well. All right. With that being said, again, a reminder, we're going to cover all the news from the past weekend in the professional tennis world on tomorrow's mini break episode, uh, as well as get to another edition, of course, of Technique Tuesday. If you want to see some new content today, go to our YouTube channel to go check out the interview I did with Bethany Maddox-Sands, and we will talk about uh, that topic more again on tomorrow's mini break. But for today, while you are enjoying kicking back and enjoying a self-quarantining weekend Memorial Day, uh, Memorial Day weekend, excuse me, we want all of you to enjoy a new episode of our brand new podcast here at Crack Rackets, the Inside Out Podcast. With that being said, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Inside Out Podcast, The Peak, focusing on the successes of Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi and all they did for American men's tennis. Westoff, roll it. The purpose of this series is to determine the best American male tennis player at any given point in the open era. To signify which American male sat on top of the American men's tennis world, we award them the hypothetical championship belt. Here's the criteria I used in judging each of these players. Grand Slam titles, year-end rankings, popularity amongst fans, Davis Cup success, success on the American Junior Tour, and last but not least, head-to-head records. In 1995, Nike created an advertisement to celebrate the Pete Sampras-Andre Agassi rivalry. In what is still one of the strangest television commercials I have ever seen, the two American men race around New York City in a taxi, stopping to create a tennis court and to play a match in the streets. This may seem like an irrelevant detail, 
However, in my 24 years of life, I have still never seen a tennis commercial so prominently feature two American male players. The commercial's existence speaks to the extent to which the Pete Sampras-Andre Agassi rivalry transcended not only American tennis, but American sports culture as well. Part 5, and then there were two, Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi. Sampras, Agassi, Courier, and Chang combined to win 27 of the 56 Grand Slam singles events held between Chang's 1989 French Open title and Agassi's 2003 Australian Open title. That means four American men combined to win 48% of the Grand Slam singles events played in that stretch of time. Additionally, one of these four players won two or more single slams in six separate seasons during the 1990s. That feat remains unmatched by any other generation of American men. Through the 1992 season, each of Sampras, Agassi, Courier, and Chang had showed that they could dominate the tour at any given tournament. However, neither Courier nor Chang managed to eclipse the accomplishments of their earliest seasons. Thankfully, Given the rise of Sampras and Agassi, their respective declines did little to diminish the standing of American tennis. At the start of the 93 Wimbledon, Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi began separating themselves from their competitors. The two combined to win 20 of the next 39 men's single slams. Polar opposites in both game style and personality, their rivalry filled a void in tennis left open since the days of McEnroe vs. Connors. The two were undisputably the best players in men's tennis. As such, the quality of their play treated American fans to a level of tennis that they had never seen before, and one that has not been achieved by any American man since. On April 12, 1993, Pete Sampras became the top-ranked player in the world. He earned this feat despite not having won a slam since the 1990 U.S. Open. Afterwards, he received criticism from both fans and media alike. To them, players like Courier, Becker, and Edberg deserved the top ranking, as they had won slams quite recently. Sampras's performance at the 1993 French Open only served to legitimize those claims. The top-seeded Sampras fell in the quarterfinal round, while contemporary Jim Courier proceeded to another slam final. The criticism continued to mount through the grass court summer and reached its peak as Wimbledon began. Here, however, Sampras's narrative began its turn. It's only the fourth time in 46 years, an All-American final. In 93, Pete walked onto the Wimbledon grass with a new attitude. He was pitted against Courier in the final. There was no more nonchalance. 
He was very much all business. Pete conquered Wimbledon. And here's the champion, Pete Sampras. One must wonder how many more times might we see this scene. At the 1993 Wimbledon, Sampras dispatched Agassi, Becker, and Courier to capture his second Grand Slam title. He quickly followed that up with a dominant performance at the U.S. Open, dropping only two sets en route to his third-ever Grand Slam victory. He made it three in a row with his 94 Australian Open title, and after falling in the French Open quarters, he made it four out of five by defending his crown at Wimbledon. It's worth looking at just how exceptional Pete Sampras was from 1993 to 1997. Over the course of those five seasons, Sampras averaged a record of 71-13 and 13 in tour-level events. Playing about 19 events per season, Sampras won an average of 8 events and reached a total of 9.4 finals per season over that stretch of time. That translates to him winning 40% of the events he plays and reaching the final in almost half of them. He won 9 major titles, reached an additional major final in 20 slams, and won 8 Masters title in 33 events. He also finished the 94, 96, 97 seasons as the year-end champion and ended every season during the stretch ranked number 1. Sampras' 1994 season particularly stands out as one of the greatest in the sport's history. In 18 events, he reached 12 finals, won 10 titles, including crowns at the Australian Open and Wimbledon, took home the year-end championships, and went a total of 77-12 and 12 to end the year ranked as the number one player. Sampras' biggest blemish of the year came at the U.S. Open, where he was upset in the fourth round. Surprisingly, that was not the biggest storyline coming out of the event. Instead, everyone was talking about how one player became the first unseeded men's singles champion in the tournament's history. That player, of course, was Andre Agassi. The full account of Agassi's story is best given in his autobiography, Open. He describes at length the degree to which he suffered from both physical and mental ailments throughout his career. Beyond the injuries and drug use, Agassi also claims to have hated playing the sport on multiple occasions. Nevertheless, his talent was undeniable. He first cracked the top 100 in October of 1986. Unlike his contemporaries, he was able to skip the 1987 Kalamazoo, having already secured direct entry into the U.S. Open. He was the first out of all of us to make the first break. I mean, he you know, went on to win like five tournaments of one year, and he got into the top five, and he really kind of was the, the start of the American crew. He was the man. I mean, he was definitely the, the first guy to, to, to make that first jump. Perhaps the most impressive aspect of Agassi's career was its longevity. He first reached the top 10 in June of 1988 and is one of the few players in men's tennis history to have a top 10 ranking in three separate decades. He is also the only player in tennis history to have won the career Super Slam, meaning he won each major in Olympic singles gold and the ATP year-end championships at least one time during his career. 
Agassi was actually the last of the Golden Generation to win a slam, and in 1997, he became the first of the four to fall out of the top 100. Injuries, a flunk drug test, and incredibly poor match results plagued his 1997 season. After reaching as high as number one in the world in 1995, it seemed like Agassi had finally burnt out for good. Perhaps that is why, upon reflection, his career is the most fascinating of the four players. Agassi made four straight slam finals between the 99 and 2000 seasons and won five more slams between 1999 and 2003. He finished his career with eight major titles in all and was ranked number one in the world as late as August 2003. In 2006, he sailed off into the sunset, becoming the last of the golden generation to retire from the tour. Over the last 21 years, I have found you, and I will thank you and the memory of you with me for the rest of my life. Thank you. And there's no doubt that the flamboyant personality Agassi displayed on the court has helped him achieve all of the success in his post-tennis career. The next chapter of Andre's story uh, needed to be written, and that was one of somebody who, who took his caring and, and put it into action. And, and you could walk through those doors now. That, that particular passion and dream actually has a lock and key. You open it up, walk in there, you see the school, the classrooms, and, and, it's, and there it is. His charity, the Andre Agassi Charitable Foundation in Southern Nevada, has raised over $60 million for at-risk children. In 2001, the foundation opened the Andre Agassi College Preparatory Academy in Vegas, a K-12 public charter school for at-risk children. He also dated Barbara Streisand and Brooke Shields before settling down and marrying fellow tennis star Steffi Graf in 2001. Starting with a five-set Sampras victory in the 93 Wimbledon quarterfinals, results from the Agassi-Sampras rivalry defined the storylines on the ATP Tour. The guys won seven of the eight majors from Wimbledon 93 to Australia 95. They flip-flopped between the number one and two spots in the rankings on multiple occasions and played in 16 finals against one another during their respective careers. It's also worth examining just how dominant the two were against their fellow American contemporaries. Sampras carried a winning record against every American he faced during this era, going 16-4 and against Jim Courier, 12-8 and against Michael Chang, 18-4 and against Todd Martin, 7-0 and against Mal Washington, 8-0 and against David Wheaton, 6-2 and two against Richie Reneberg, and 4-1 and one against young upcomer Vincent Spadia. Outside of his head-to-heads with Sampras and Courier, Agassi went 15-7 and seven against Chang, 13-5 and five against Martin, 6-2 and two against Washington, 6-3 and three against Wheaton, 9-0 and oh against Reneberg, 4-2 and two against Vincent Spadia, and 5-1 and one against Andy Roddick. Thank you. 
The biggest difference between Agassiz and Sampras is that while Agassiz fell off from 1996 to 1999, Sampras solidified his claim as one of, if not the greatest, male tennis player of all time. He won 7 of 8 Wimbledons from 93 to 2000 and ended the millennium with the most Grand Slam titles of any man in the Open era. Agassiz deserves mountains of credit for his late career resurgence, and that resurgence is certainly enough to get him in the best male tennis player of all time conversation. However, by the end of his career, Pete Sampras' place in tennis history was already secured. No result better epitomizes Sampras' edge over Agassiz than the final match of their career which took place during the 2002 U.S. Open Men's Singles Final. Despite coming into the event as the lower-seeded player, Sampras knocked off seeds Greg Rosinski, Tommy Haas, Andy Roddick, and Sung Shalkin before meeting up with the six-seeded Agassi. Over the course of his four-set victory, Sampras's serve-and-volley tactics and relentless aggression under pressure got him over the edge against Agassi one last time and secured his final Grand Slam victory. He's there. He's champion for the fifth time here in New York. And he's made monkeys out of most of us. It should come as no surprise that Sampras carried a 20 and 14 career head to head edge over Agassi, which includes a 4 and 1 record in slam finals. By the time Sampras defeated Agassi in that U.S. Open final, the duo's narrative was already written. Despite all of Agassi's charisma and talent, both on and off the court, Sampras was, and may still be, the king of American men's tennis. There's no denying the two took American men's tennis to places it had never seen before. Their rivalry defined a generation of American men's tennis, a generation that was the best our country has ever seen. We hope you enjoyed listening to part five of our series, The Belt. Before we go, we have to give a shout out to a couple of people who help make these episodes possible. A big thank you to Blue Claw Music and Thomas Ackley for their song, America the Beautiful, hip-hop track remix, which you will hear used throughout this series. We also want to give a shout out to Tennis Famer, Takezo Bomblat, Tennis Channel, and Fox Sports for their help in the clips we use throughout this. As always, shout out to super producer Daniel Westoff for the f*** of an editing job he has done throughout this series. Coming up in our next episode, as American tennis fans, we reach the peak of the summit with Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras. The biggest question, where could we go from there? We try to answer that in our next episode as we explore the career of Andy Roddick.